oh, if Tom Woods had his way, I would never become a libertarian, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's what's so funny is that 99% of leftists who do come my way say, Tom, if anything, you are being too easy on these people. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hey, Liberty Kitties. Welcome back to the show. The 288th edition of the show, to be exact. That's an important number to remember because you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 288. And you're going to want to head over there to find out about a free book you can get from today's guest. Of course, I am not alone here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. You've got a couple spinoffs here coming at you in the rest of the week. On Wednesday, you've got Brian McWilliams with his weekly look at comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land. And then over on Friday, John Odermatt is going to take a look at the broken criminal justice system with Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything. You can also support the growth of this program by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do so by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. And if you join up this week, you'll get a special bonus segment that I recorded with today's guest available exclusively to subscribers. So be sure to go ahead and check that out. Lionsofliberty.com slash support. My guest today is making his second appearance on this program. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he's published many, many books relating to the ideas of liberty. His most recent book, which details some of his encounters with the left and social justice warriors in particular, is entitled Sane Space, and it's available for free. We'll tell you just how to get it a little bit later in the show. He is no stranger to most of you. He is, of course, the host of The Daily Tom Woods Show. I am pleased to welcome back the one, the only Tom Woods. Tom. Are you ready to roar? You betcha, Mark. Glad to be here. <laughs> now, Tom, it's been about two years or so since you were last on the show, and, and the Tom Woods Show has really solidified itself as one of the top libertarian podcasts out there, really one of the top political podcasts out there, if you ask me. And, and you interview a wide variety of guests on a wide variety of liberty-related topics five days a week, a phenomenal feat, and you continually put these shows out on such a consistent basis. So I'm just curious, is there one guest or one subject in particular that, that really just gets you fired up and gets you to that extra level of excitement for an interview? Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe foreign policy. I'd like to know more about it. I feel like I probably know more than the average person, but the more I know about it, the more convinced I am that my position is correct. So I am interested in stuff like that. But what really interests me about all this is that I can still be going well into the 870s uh, in terms of number of episodes and not be running out of topics. That is really what amazes me more than anything else is that there's so much to discuss and I'll still be talking about brand new things that have never been covered in nearly a thousand episodes. It really is amazing, especially hearing that your number, I think you said 870 or so, and I'm here putting, patting myself on the back for, for nearing the, the 300 mark here. But th that is something I learned because when you well, first – yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that is that is great. That is a great achievement given that most podcasts don't make it past episode number seven. Right, now, if they right. get past episode <laughs> seven, they may have some longevity. It's sort of like life expectancy figures. If a person gets past age five or ten – that person is likely to live to 75 or 80, that sort of thing. But, you know, it's the it's the people who don't live to age five who way bring down all the numbers. Well, likewise, if you were to do an average of how many episodes a podcast has, it's not that not that large. But when you get rid of all the podcasters who give up after episode three, 
you get into this elite group where there are a lot of episodes, but it's an elite group. A lot of people just quit doing it. Sure. I think a lot of podcasters are, are probably self-critical. I mean, there's not an episode of my own that I can go back and listen to that I don't cringe at some point, whether I just misspoke or said something wrong or asked a question in a, in a way that, that sounded weird to me. So it's very easy to almost give up. I mean, early on, I almost wanted to just say, forget this whole experiment. But but the continuing on is really the biggest feature of a successful podcaster because that's what differentiates the, the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff, the people that continue to put those episodes in out on a continuous basis. And by the way, it's it is harder than it looks. So yes. <laughs> if, you, if you find that there are bits and pieces of it here and there that aren't exactly the way you would have liked them if you had been able to rehearse it 12 times, well, most people couldn't do any better. <laughs> yeah, It will never, ever be perfect, especially to yourself, to the one going back and listening to things, because I think we're all just far more critical of the way we do things, the way we produce our own products than we would be of, say, our guests or, or anybody else or any other podcast that we would listen to. Right, right, right. So I'm I'm really thrilled about your success. Good for you. I mean, there's plenty of room for all of us in, in this world. Yeah, and, and like you said, it's an amazing thing because when you first become a libertarian, uh, Murray Rothbard has a whole speech about this. You you actually think you're the only libertarian at first. You think that there's maybe you and whatever author you first read, and that's about it. And it's only as you kind of go along into the movement, especially, I mean, I became a libertarian before the Ron Paul era, before he really exploded it onto into mainstream ideas. So before that time, I really did think there was only maybe four or five libertarians out there so it amazes me that people like you are able to near a thousand episodes i'm nearing 300 episodes and there are many many other libertarian podcasts doing similar things and they're all producing unique content and and with unique people with hundreds and hundreds of other people that are actually out there not just being libertarians but these people all have books and projects and podcasts and movies and documentaries of their own it really does make you realize okay i'm not i'm not insane which ties into and, your book and let's not forget it's not a fixed number i get so much email from people saying they became libertarians or harder core libertarians specifically because they listened to my show. A friend tipped them off about it. They said, all right, I'll listen to an episode or two. They wound up listening to all 870, whatever, <laughs> and it changed the way they think. So a lot of times you and I get uh, no doubt accused of preaching to the choir. But for one thing, the choir sometimes bring friends to church, right. you know, <laughs> so that's one thing. Secondly, even if we were just preaching to the choir, this is one of my constant themes, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that, because I don't know of any church on earth where, when it comes time for the preaching, the pastor says to the choir, hey, why don't you guys go out and have a cigarette? I'm going to be preaching. The choir is preached to every Sunday with good reason, that the choir also needs to be strengthened in what it is that they believe. And in our case, our choir needs to be equipped with arguments and ways to handle themselves in debate and knowledge so that we can be more effective. There's no, no shame whatsoever in preaching to the choir, even if that were what we were doing. And to continue that analogy, I mean, the choir isn't necessarily always singing the exact same song at the exact same pitch. I mean, we have different songs in our little church here, uh, in our little choir. We have different pitches, different ways to sing maybe some of the same ideals out. So it, it makes perfect sense to continue the conversation because it's really never over. And Tom, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you recently put out this book entitled Sane Space, which collects some of your emails focusing on a lot of your personal interactions with the left and those you might call social justice warriors. And this is a term that's tossed around a lot. Uh, some of my more lefty friends will say, you know, why is being a social justice warrior such a bad thing? Aren't you libertarians for justice? So how do you define a social justice warrior and how do you see their view of the term justice differing from the libertarian view of justice? 
Well, I actually don't like the term social justice warrior, and I've said that on my show for this reason, because it actually makes them sound, even though it makes them sound a bit quixotic, at the same time, it makes them sound, well, you know, even if a bit too idealistic, basically on the right track. Who wouldn't be a warrior for justice? If we believe in justice, who wouldn't be a warrior for it? So I think the term gives them much too much credit. I mean, I don't know what we I don't know what the correct term for them is, but it would not be quite that complimentary. No, what's wrong with them, of course, is their view that there really isn't another point of view. Now it's true, libertarians can fall into this too, but I think by and large we know what progressives believe. Sometimes we read their websites, sometimes we've read some of their books. We're at least somewhat familiar with what they have to say. The social justice warrior is somebody who genuinely thinks there is the correct position and there is wickedness and oppression. And there can't be anybody in between. And there can't be any good reason. There cannot be any good reason to hold a view other than theirs, other than obviously you just want to oppress people and you hate people and you're insensitive and you're a jerk. There can't be a a legitimate difference of opinion. And what's wrong with that, of course, is that if there can't be a legitimate difference of opinion, that means we can't have debates, which means all we have is shouting people down and violent suppression of ideas. If it's absolutely, if it's a metaphysical impossibility that we could ever meet on a level playing field and have an exchange of ideas, well, what are we going to do instead other than have physical altercations? And that there's no, there's no way you can defend that or think that's admirable. It's not. Absolutely. I recently had Jordan Peterson on the program. I know you had him as a guest as well. And I mean, he'll show up somewhere uh, to have a, a debate, a scheduled debate at a university that wants to have him. I think recently, actually, a couple of people backed out of a debate with him because of threats of violence. And he still showed up and people just showed up to shout him down. He couldn't even get a word in edgewise because they're not interested in a debate. If they're interested in a debate, that would be fantastic. I'd love to have the debate. I know you have a passion for having these debates. But when they show up and just scream and tell you you, you should not be heard, that's a whole different animal. And if you can't be heard, if you can't express your views through words, like you said, there's only one thing left, and that's the fists. And that's that's very dangerous. Now, on the other hand, you can always exploit that type of situation by getting the YouTube video and spreading it around. Even though the people in that particular audience didn't get a chance to hear you, an audience 10, 100,000 times as large will get a chance to see the viral video. And you've got a decent chance of having your video go viral when it's a video of a peaceful person being shouted down. And of course, now those social justice warriors will say you're not really peaceful because if you don't want to use the right gender pronouns, you're implicitly committing violence. But I think most people think there's a difference between not using strange words that begin with X on the one hand (laughs) and kicking somebody in the teeth in the other. I think most people can see there's a real difference between those things. And so I'm actually going to be speaking in uh, early April of this year at Yale University. And my view is if I am not shouted down or in some way physically prevented from speaking, my appearance will have been at least partially a failure. Have you ha- ever had an experience similar to that of, of Dr. Jordan Peterson or even someone like Milo? Obviously, you haven't had anything that extreme, but you, have you had people that show up to events of yours that, that have just shouted you down? No, that's never happened. That's partly because I'm not, as, do, Tom. I'm not as well known as those people. I don't speak on top. I mean, you know, if I go talk about the Federal Reserve, <laughs> what kind of person's going to show up and shout me down over that. You know, you'd have to be a you'd have to be even more of a blockhead to to do that. So but on the other hand, I haven't done that much university speaking over the past couple of years and it's my impression that things have gotten exponentially worse over the past couple of years. I think I was speaking during a time I think it was basically a paradise in those days. 
So I think the tone definitely has changed, and we'll see. But as I say, I'm not I'm not an Ann Coulter. I'm not Milo. Jordan Peterson got some notoriety because of the controversy surrounding him. I'm just an unknown, relatively speaking. So that means I can sort of get away with it. And it really is frightening when you think about the fact that a lot of this comes from our universities, which is supposed to be the place where the next generation really develops their their deeper level ideas, their develops their philosophy thinks deeper about political issues and yet what we're seeing and this obviously doesn't apply to everybody that goes to university at all i'm sure it's it's a, a minority but in a ways a minority supported by the majority supported by a lot of the philosophy espoused by their teachers so it really is a top-down thing in many ways and this relates directly to the title of your book sane space uh, obviously playing on the uh, the safe space term that we've heard out there where people just need to be protected from certain ideas which is why they show up at events by jordan peterson milo and and shout them down because they need protection not not from violence, from ideas. And that's a very scary thought. Uh, I do want to touch on a few of the sort of little notes in your book here. These are from your your email newsletter and then highlight a lot of your encounters with social justice warriors and with just sort of leftist ideas. Uh, one of them is really interesting because it's something you see in, in meme form all the time. And that's the idea. You always see a meme that just says, enjoying your weekends? <laughs> well, better thank the labor unions. Uh, that's that's my with my own little sarcastic uh, sort of tone put on there, but that's the way I read it. So when you see that and, and what is the the response to that idea, the idea that labor unions specifically are the entire reason that we have weekends at all? Yeah, they are not the reason we have weekends. Just think of it this way. Do you think people in Bangladesh could suddenly have weekends off if all they had to do was just organize into labor unions? Or they could all have massages at work and have a five-hour workday if all they needed was the code of federal regulations imposed in their country. Now, to the contrary, this would impoverish them even further. People would be starving to death if you imposed the code of federal regulations on them. And if you simply if you try to unionize them, thinking that this will get them extra time off, what you're really trying to do is take a country that's extremely primitive in the tools it has, the capital goods it has to produce stuff, and say, well, a lot of the stuff you're producing is done with your bare hands, so it's very inefficient, and that's why you're poor, and that's why you've got to work 24 hours a day just to create bare subsistence for yourselves. But you know what? We're going to tell you not to work a couple of days. The reason they work so hard is not because evil men with white mustaches wearing a monocle are <laughs> arbitrarily demanding that they work hard. They're working in basically more or less pre-industrial conditions. Of course, everybody has to work all those hours just to be able to produce the raw goods necessary to give everybody a minimally acceptable standard of living. What those people need is capitalists who will take their profits, invest them in machines. The machines make the workers more physically productive, which means more output, which puts downward pressure on prices, which means now their paychecks can extend farther and they can be wealthier. That's the process that has delivered everybody on earth from poverty. Simply introducing, for, for heaven's sake, labor unionism misses the point so badly, uh, only a university-educated student could come up with it. Isn't the idea of even guaranteed days off, just period, sort of a, a, a sign that a society has very, really progressed to a very privileged point in a way, not to use a, a social justice term, but I mean, we're very lucky that we've progressed in a way uh, through capitalism, although not that we have a cap fully capitalist society here in the United States, obviously, but we've been able to progress because we are at a point where we have the wealth where we can take days off. We're able, we, you know, we can actually have days where we don't work. Whereas 150, 200 years ago, days off. Are you kidding me? I mean, people had to get up and go create their 
food and go farm and, and make sure that they were able to live through that very day. So it's, it's definitely a sign of, of society progressing. But to actually point, oh, right. <laughs> to, to point to labor unions being responsible, well, there's simply no evidence for that. Yeah, yeah, because basically what what happens is people begin in a situation where they work long hours in very undesirable conditions. That's true of every civilization everywhere. That's how it starts, because if you don't do that, there won't be enough goods produced to support everybody. But then you get to a level where you can now start making trade-offs. You can say, I could work, you know, let's say, you know, 100 hours a week, and I could get more money by working 100 hours a week. I could do that now. But I don't want to. I, I would. I have enough money that I would be willing to sacrifice some additional money in exchange for leisure or better working conditions. I mean, anybody listening to this right now could probably work 100 hours a week, but you choose not to most of the time, even though you could earn more money because it proves to you that there is something more valuable to you than money. Well, the reason for that is that you've gotten to a point where your society is rich enough that you have enough money to be able to splurge, in effect, on leisure. Now, that's great. I'm glad we're at that position. But most or a lot, let's say a lot of people in the world are not. And I have a friend who's at Texas Tech University, Ben Powell, who actually bothered to ask people instead of instead of trying to improve people's lives without their consent or without asking what they prefer. He actually bothered to go to a couple of places in Guatemala that are considered sweatshops. And he said, look, in exchange for a very small reduction in your pay, would you want a commensurate increase in your work improvement in your working conditions or would you want x amount of time off or would you want the following things overwhelmingly i mean al almost all the answers to these questions were 95 plus percent no we wouldn't want that at this stage in our lives and they didn't quite put it this way but at this stage in our economic development we want the money we don't want all these fringe benefits it's much better for us to get the cash and then we'll spend the cash the way we want someday we might want these other things but right now you would be making us worse off by forcing us to accept them how about that because they actually value the money they're getting over the these extra luxuries that some people here in living in you know mansions in the United States would like to impose upon them exactly exactly and they don't bother to take the 2 minutes it would require to, to think of what the likely outcome of this would be Obviously, it would make these people worse off. So, so again, so Ben actually goes and asks them, do you think you'd be better off or worse off? And they're all saying, of course we'd be worse off. And, and as David R. Henderson puts it, he's, a, he's an economist I like, he says, you don't help the poor by taking their list of options and then eliminating the option they actually chose. <laughs> Well, Tom, obviously they're only saying that because someone is literally standing behind them with a whip threatening them if, you know, while Ben Powell is standing there talking to them. That's, that's the only possible explanation I can think of for this. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, Tom, we're going to dig a little bit more into your thoughts on communicating with the left in just a minute. But first, I need to give a quick word to some friends of the program. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. 
The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. Uh, Tom, I want to move on, and this one, it hurt my head to read the first time, so it might it might hurt my head to hear you talk about it, but I think we need to do it anyway, because it's a, it's a very frightening attitude that I actually see a lot, even among regular human beings, but can you tell us about your exchange with a leftist who casually, I love your title here, who casually favors the deaths of billions? Oh, yeah, I remember I was on vacation with my uh, kids last year. Even on vacation, Mass- you, can't, you can't stay out of this stuff. I, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, they, they were attacking. Uh, I, it was on my own, I think it was on my Facebook wall. And I, I don't even use that. I use my so-called fan page. Well, anyway, it was one of these – it was a person who had been an anarcho-capitalist who would become an anarcho-communist and had become literally and explicitly – I was not making this up – anti-civilization. Her argument was that civilization is the source of all our problems. It's why we're depressed. It's why we're unhappy. And so I was you know, having a little fun at her expense saying, well, if you think you'd be less depressed living in a mud hut, go ahead and do it. There's nobody stopping you. You can go live in the interior of the jungle somewhere and build a hut and live in self-sufficiency. Why don't you do that instead of making all of us do that? Because if you made all of us do that, probably billions of people would drop dead. And I never really got a good reply to why that was something to be avoided, because I don't think she thought that was something to be avoided. And, and I thought, I didn't think people like this actually exist. I mean, it turns out there's a whole group of people who are literally anti-civilization. And, and every comfort you can imagine in civilization, they want to get rid of. I, I always thought this was a figment of the extreme right wing's imagination. Obviously, people like this aren't really out there. And they were. And so I just had fun going after them. And then, of course, all my comments were deleted, as always happens in Facebook land. So you think, oh, that's gone forever. But but I'm always looking for email fodder because I send out that newsletter every every weekday or at least now, you know, I have five kids. So. When I don't send out a newsletter in a particular day, it just means I was spending extra time with them or something. But I thought to myself, well, if I don't have it on Facebook anymore, I have it in my, I have it in the old noodle that I can use uh, in an email, which I did. Go. They can't delete that. You're darn right. Now, Tom, and uh, it really is like a, a hallmark of of the left in many ways. And again, I don't like to to paint broad brushes too much, but the, at least of the the extreme sort of environmental element of the left, it's a very anti human attitude. It basically says that literally, I mean, some of them will literally say dirt and ants are more important than humans because humans are a destructive force on the world. Everything we do is destroying the earth. So we need to, we need to reduce humans. We need to, and, and so we can have more dirt and ants. And obviously a lot of them really want more fish and more deer and, and libertarians want that too, but they don't want it at the expense of the lives of millions and billions of human beings is, is the difference I would say. Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously not even something worth arguing because it's, it's self-evidently ridiculous. Nobody would want to live this way. Even, the vast majority of leftists would never want to live this way. If if leftists had to live that way, they would not have the leisure time they now have to condemn capitalism because they'd have to spend all their time making their own clothes and and growing their own food and everything. They'd never get around to it. So they like the leisure time that modern civilization has made possible. That Otherwise, how would they have jobs where they have to teach for six hours a week and then they can sit in their offices blogging all day? You know, where else? How's that going to happen without civilization? 
Right. Yeah. How are they? How are they going to be Facebooking Tom Woods if if we didn't have any of these these societal advances that they like that they'd like to indeed. Eliminate? Yes. <laughs> Uh, Tom, you, you know you have all these encounters with the left, and and obviously you you originally came from the right, so I think that's one reason you're you know more comfortable sort of arguing against the right because you know the arguments because you used to make those very same arguments yourself. Uh, and you recently had a conversation with Dave Smith uh, on your program about reaching out to the left, and he's he's been on our show before, and he is different from you in the sense that he actually came from the left. He was actually a progressive before Tom Woods and some other people sort of turned him around and had him th- seeing things a, a different way. Uh, so I'm wondering if you took anything from that conversation obviously uh your book saint space is, is filled with examples of why the left is almost unreachable in many ways or at least many elements of the extreme left again don't want to paint too broad a brush but then again some people like dave smith and others were actually brought over to libertarianism from the left so despite your personal experiences as you detail in the book saint space you know was dave able to convince you in any way of some of the value of reaching out to the left well my view is do what you're good at if Dave's good at reaching out to the left, let him do it. I'm just not good at it. Now, that's not to say I haven't converted some people, but it's been entirely by accident, not by design. So that's fine, and I love Dave. And But he's the first to admit, as a lot of former leftists are, that the left really is full of problems. Now, if, if anybody thinks all I do is attack the left, well, all you got to do is look at my book before this one, which is called Real Descent. And most of that book is about the neocons and how terrible they are. So in fact, for the longest time, people thought people were really getting on my case because I never really attacked Obama because I thought it was just so obvious everybody's already attacking Obama. I want to do something that's off the radar a bit. The neocons are terrible, and not enough people are attacking them, so I'd focus on that. But now that the left is just in our faces all the time, and I think the Trump age is just an interlude, so I think the left still is the the real problem. So I've I've shifted a bit of my emphasis. But my point about the left was that they ever since the French Revolution, it's been their desire, basically, to to centralize regimes and then ram their ideas through and force people to live and think and speak in a certain way. And that is their goal. The idea that they would simply retreat and say, well, as long as San Francisco can be the way I want it, I'm perfectly happy if other people live other ways. They're, they're not. They're not. They are imperialists in that way. They are cultural imperialists. Now, there was one drama queen on Facebook who tagged me and gave me this whole song and dance about, oh, if Tom Woods had his way, I would never have become a libertarian, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, that's what's so funny is that 99% of leftists who do come my way say, Tom, if anything, you are being too easy on these people. Keep smacking them. And you know, by the way, some of the reasons I changed my own opinions on something was not because people came to me and they were all lovey-dovey and, oh, Tom, you're just a little bit misguided when it comes to war and let me try. No, it was they, they, they said, you knucklehead, what's the matter with you? And they would lay out in, in very punchy, aggressive rhetoric what was wrong with my view. That got my attention and that converted me over. So maybe some people need to be serenaded with wine and cheese but other people actually do respond when you really when you grab them by the collar and say, now, hang on a minute. I want you to think clearly for once in your life. Yeah, I don't think anybody would change their foreign policy views if Ron Paul had just come out on a, on a stage at a Republican debate and said, well, I think our foreign policy, I, I totally I, I kind of get why we do it. And I think we should have a lot of our military bases, but we we sort of need to maybe rethink some of the strategy here. I don't think anybody would have, you know, sort of waken out of a stupor and gone, oh, my God, we need to rethink things. He didn't do that. He said 
This is wrong. We're directly causing terrorism. This needs to stop. We need to bring all our troops home now. It's a completely different message. So that's really more the approach you're taking to addressing the left. Whether they have good intentions or not, you think they need to be approached with a very direct message of why you think their view is wrong and not with, as you said, the cheese and the crackers. And, and also, frankly, the cheese and the crackers. I like that. <laughs> yeah, strawberries and I mean, cream, I love cheese and but... crackers. This might not be the way to win <laughs> right. me over on certain Yeah, things. no, no, no. That's right. And, but also, I think it's important to show that we're not intimidated because they do. I mean, yeah, I know the right wing has its issues, but they're not trying to te- make me use certain words and terrorize me and get me fired from a university and whatever. I, I mean, there are a few right wing hysterics on some issues, but by and large, they're not doing that. Nobody's shouting down a left wing speaker on any campus. We all know that. Everybody knows that. The whole country knows that nobody is living in fear of right wing students. So I think it's important for us to be bold and blunt as a way of saying, you have not succeeded in intimidating me. If anything, you've emboldened me to be tougher and more obnoxious than I was before. So congratulations. Tom, one more thing I want to touch on, and then we'll let everybody out there know how they can get sane space. But I'm not sure if you saw, there was a little bit of a recent flap, which started uh, by an appearance on this program by Nicholas Sawark, the head of the Libertarian Party. And he had mentioned, we we were just kind of talking about libertarian leaders and and sort of, you know, how they are viewed by people. And he kind of made a remark that, you know, this is after I had said something positive about Ron Paul. And he said, well, you know, even Ron Paul's not perfect because he supported, you know, he supported DOMA. He supported some things that aren't really libertarian in view, and he used states' rights as the reason. And this kind of set off a firestorm of people really going after Nick Sarwark about that issue, about states' rights. And it does kind of tie back to your first appearance on this program two years ago, because I actually, at that time, if you recall, I asked you a sort of a hypothetical scenario about if the federal government just decided to end the war on drugs overnight, and every state said, yeah, what are we doing? This is crazy. But one state was just a holdout and said, nope, nope, right here, here in, I don't want to smear any state, but let's just say Alabama. Uh, here in Alabama, we're going to enforce the heck out of this thing. And I asked, you know, would would you then support almost a federal nullification uh, going sort of the, the reverse way that it, we typically speak of nullification because it's really the right thing. We're against the war on drugs. Uh, so, I mean, I'm kind of I've kind of laid out a lot here for you, but I'm wondering if you had you know thought that issue through a little bit more or if you had seen that recent conversation regarding states rights. And, and how do you reconcile this states rights issue with sort of it, it, situations where the federal government might actually be doing the right thing? And a state might be doing the wrong thing from the libertarian view, but that might conflict with sort of the constitutional view or the the sort of strategic view that we should support states' rights at all times. Right. I would be inclined to say that I would favor – in the case of Alabama, by the way, where I used to live, I'll just say a a kind word for them in that when Angel Rach went to the Supreme Court over medical marijuana, they submitted an amicus brief on behalf of her saying that even though we don't want medical marijuana – we think it's a legitimate position for another state to take. And so, I mean, it, that's far more open-minded than almost any progressive state is toward the red states. Sure. You know, we, we don't favor it, but we think it's okay for you to favor it. But anyway, I would favor in that case civil disobedience in that state. What I am very hesitant about is ever thinking of the federal government as being my savior. Because I, I just don't see that ending well. And moreover, yes, it's true. Of course, states, individual states are going to do terrible, rotten things. And that's true whether you have right-wingers in charge or left-wingers in charge. Like Maryland, Tom DiLorenzo is complaining about the commies in Maryland constantly. So he spends as little time there as he possibly can just to teach. But when we look at the overall, what's the overall record of centralized government? Was We're told that states' rights, so-called, 
which is just shorthand. Obviously, we know states don't have rights. It's just a shorthand phrase. I wish people would stop going hysterical about a shorthand phrase. But the idea is when we look at the history of centralized government and then we look at the history of states' rights and federations, we're supposed to believe that states' rights gives you all these local oppressions. And it can give you local oppressions. They're still states. So they are going to do terrible things. But when I look at, for example, the record of that minorities have had living in different societies. It's true that black Americans, for example, suffered many indignities, uh, not to mention outright slavery in the U.S. That is true. Well, what's been the record in centralized societies? Have there never been cases of people being enslaved in highly centralized societies? Have there, to the contrary, we've seen some of the worst genocides and outrages perpetrated on people. I mean, I don't have to re be reduced to mentioning Nazi Germany, which everybody mentions, and, and it's almost to the point where you get laughed at if you bring up Nazi Germany, because it's so obvious. So I, I can look at the Soviet Union. I can look what happened. The, the Ukrainians were a minority in the Soviet Union. They were deliberately starved to death, millions of them, in the early 1930s. And I've, in some of my speaking, I've given example after example after example I mean, of course, I, being half Armenian, are particularly sensitive to the, the, the threat of centralized states because of what the Ottoman Empire did to the Armenians in the early 20th century. So it's not like the centralized states have an amazing record of, of respect for minorities. To the contrary, their record is even worse. So when, if, you're, if you're asking me, do I have to choose between the two, I don't really like that choice. But just given the record and given the logic of the thing— I'll take the greater number of smaller units and go from there. In fact, that's why I think F.A. Hayek once said that in the future, liberty is most likely to flourish in small states. All right, Tom. Well, before I let you go, I definitely want to make sure everybody knows how they can find a copy of Sane Space because it's a really fun read and it's a really quick read. I mean, I literally read it in an afternoon. So it's a very, very easy book to get through and it really gives you a lot of valuable insight on, on a variety of issues, a lot of stuff you're going to hear from your, your lefty friends if you have any or maybe just on Facebook, depending on the circles that you're moving. So how can people get a copy of Sane Space? Well, it is a very short little book. It's one of my free ebooks. I've released a bunch of them. This is by far the shortest. You can get through it in in uh, no time at all. And it's just you can just go to sanespacebook.com. Obviously, it's a it's a play on safe space. So it's sanespacebook.com. Don't cost you nothing. Great, Tom. Well, I do appreciate you coming back on the program. It's always a pleasure to listen to you either here one-on-one -on -one or by listening to the Tom Woods show. Is there anything else you got going on that you'd like to promote to our listeners before I send you off on your way here? Well, you might check out my whole span of free books. Now, I'm, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. I'm only supposed to give out one link. That's what they, all, that's what they tell you, the gurus. Give yeah, out one link. Don't confuse people. Well, you know what? I think your listeners are smart enough to take two links. I think so. so I think they can You know what? It. Yeah, it's Mark Claire. Come on now. So the other, the other link is tomsfreebooks.com. So if you know, you're all done reading Sane Space, you say, I, I got to have more of this. Tomsfreebooks.com is where to go. All right, so be sure to check out both those links if you guys out there can handle it. And I'm, I'm sure you're also smart enough to find the Tom Woods Show, Liberty Crafts Classroom, and all of Tom's books, too. But just in case you're not, I'll link to them in the show notes today over at lionsofliberty.com slash 288. Tom, it's a pleasure as always. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring. Thank you, Mark. You too. Folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the great Tom Woods. But you didn't hear all of it. No, no, no. Tom and I talked for another 10 or 15 minutes or so because I took questions 
from our paid members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. If you sign up at the $5 or higher level, you get to join up our secret Facebook group and put out some questions for some bonus segments that I'm going to do with some of our guests. And the first person I did that with was Tom Woods, who was gracious enough to spend some extra time with us answering questions from Lions of Liberty Pride members. You can, of course, join the Lions of Liberty Pride by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. There's various levels you can join at. Uh, you'll get some free t-shirts at certain levels, free koozies, discounts at the Lions of Liberty store. Of course, you can find all our t-shirts and our koozies over at lionsofliberty.store. Be sure to go ahead and check that out. And I do want to give a shout out to a few recent members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. In the last week, we got signups from Marty Milligan, from Jim Slattery. We also got Stephanie Parker, who signed up at the $10 level. That means, Stephanie, you got a free t-shirt and a free koozie coming to you. Look for those in the mail in a few weeks. And Thomas Baldwin, who signed up at the $25 level. That means Thomas, once a month or so, gets to hop on a conference call, talk to us about the show, give us his feedback. That's just another perk you get for signing up for the Lions of Liberty Pride. We're pleased to have all you guys on board. And even though you got to pay, you got to toss in some money, help us grow this show to hear Tom Woods answer some listener questions. You don't have to pay an extra dime to hear me, your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, answer a few letters of liberty. This is another Letters of Liberty song. That last one I wrote was a downer. It somehow just fell wrong. The lion said they didn't like it. I'm not sure if that's true. All right, and you can help Dan Smots, our man, the guy who wrote this jingle, validate his poor life choices by checking out his work at Smots.com. But now it is indeed time to reach back into the old Liberty mailbag. I'm going to clean this puppy out, starting with Trevor Holmes Peterson, who I have confirmed has no relation to Austin Peterson. Trevor asks, who is your favorite president in history? Now, there's a lot of options, a lot of guys you hear tossed out there uh, when it comes to libertarian-ish presidents. Obviously, no president is a, quote, full libertarian, at least in the sense that we would talk about today. Uh, You hear names like Andrew Jackson. He's pretty good on a lot of things. But the problem with guys like Andrew Jackson and a lot of other, you know, free market-ish presidents, you know, Andrew Jackson is known for being against the central bank, is there always was some sort of atrocity. You know, Andrew Jackson enacted the Trail of Tears, essentially genocide on Native American populations. So even though I like some things he did, and then I'm like, ah, but, you know, you did this whole genocide thing, so I can't really call you my favorite or even really call you libertarian at all. But there's one guy that stands out to me, personally, as one of my favorites, and that is Cool Calvin Coolidge, because as far as I can tell, I have not been able to find any real atrocity to associate with him, him with. In fact, he was largely associated with, with pretty good times. Uh, the Roaring Twenties, now a lot of that might have been Federal Reserve fueled, uh, but a lot of that I think was the, the true growth of the economy. And he was a very free market guy. He spoke out uh, for the free market. He did actually use the presidency as sort of a bully pulpit in that sense. He was all for free trade. Uh, he tried to appoint free market people to the Federal Trade Commission, to the Interstate Commerce Commission. He he hated regulations. He wanted to 
turn back regulations. He actually reduced the federal debt and gave a lot more control to uh, you know to local to localities, to the states, to that kind of thing. He opposed farm subsidies. Uh, he was outspoken in favor of of the rights of minorities, uh, and he was against foreign entanglements. He didn't even think the United States should be joining the League of Nations, which was a predecessor to the current United Nations. So, as far as I can tell, nothing really truly awful associated with him. Generally spoke out in favor of free markets against regulations. Uh, I really can't find many many ways to criticize Calvin Coolidge, especially when you compare him to other presidents of his time. Warren G. Harding, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt. These guys were all interventionists in many ways, and Coolidge really does stand out as a guy who, who tried to be pretty hands-off, outspoken in favor of free markets, and as far as I can tell, and, and please go ahead and, and toss me anything you know about, but really no terrible atrocities or, or terrible foreign entanglements that he got involved in. So Coolidge gets my vote. The next question comes from Andrew Swain. Andrew asks, is based Stickman a hero? Now, of course, Base Stickman is the guy who was at one of these rallies uh, where Antifa was basically attacking Donald Trump supporters, some of whom were elderly. And this guy was basically dressed up in this armor gear, kind of, with a stick, just beating these Antifas away. Now, look, I- I'm not going to say when I-, when I saw that I wasn't cheering for the guy. You got to love it. You got to love these this group that, that claims to be anti-fascist while they go out and act like fascists by literally assaulting people they disagree with, assaulting Trump supporters, you know, attacking Miley Yiannopoulos, trying to shut down his speech. I'm definitely against that group and their tactics, and I'm definitely in favor of defending people. And and while I personally kind of had to cheer for the guy when I saw that stuff, at the same time, when I think about imagery, when I think about is this what we want to be associated with visually, I don't know if I would necessarily call him a a hero. I mean, in ways you could say he is. He's a hero to the people that that he defended. And but uh, our, when we're talking about the libertarian sense, is he a hero in that sense? Is he someone we want to hold up? I should say as a libertarian hero. I don't really know because when the way he's dressed, when he comes with that weapon, when he comes in that sort of battle gear he's wearing. He almost is looks like an anti-fa in a way. He looks like he's there for confrontation. And in many ways you could even say that when you're when you're coming like that, when you have that stick, when you have that big menacing sort of get up, you're you're kind of inviting confrontation in a way. I'm not saying he was, I'm not saying that's why he was there, but I don't think that's what we should necessarily be associating with. I mean, as far as his efforts were for self-defense, I'm all for them. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent he might have actually been inciting some of that violence in himself just by his presence. I'm not even saying he was, but imagery, visual-wise, I'm not sure if that image of the guy just beating people away is what you want to associate with libertarianism. It's kind of like the Jeffrey Tucker thing, which I addressed in a Letters of Liberty segment a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey Tucker basically confronted Richard Spencer, who is somewhat associated with the concepts of white supremacy. Uh, I don't know if I'd go as far as to call him a Nazi, because to me, when you call someone a Nazi, you're talking about literally throwing Jews in ovens. So I think the term is a bit overused. Uh, But He's definitely not someone I, I understand why Jeffrey would not want to associate him with libertarianism, would want to kick him out of the, the event he was at. But visually, I didn't love the the way it was 
put out there is the viral video that went out there of a somewhat intoxicated Jeffrey Tucker kind of screaming and yelling and shouting down Richard Spencer. Again, it's not about disagreeing with Jeffrey Tucker. If I was Jeffrey Tucker, I might shout down Richard Spencer too in that circumstance. But again, I don't know if I love the visual. I don't know if I love how that portrays libertarians to other people. I'd like to be libertarians to be seen as the cool, calm, collected ones who engage in dialogue, who don't engage in screaming and shouting, and who don't go out of their way to be in a position to be beating people with sticks, even if that was in self-defense. Again, like I said, don't love the imagery. Finally, I've got a question from RJ Martinez. And you're not fooling anyone, RJ. We know this is Remzo. Remzo Martinez, host of the Remzo Republic podcast, a great show you should check out. Remzo asks, are student activists within the liberty movement more prone to support social justice tendencies? And frankly, Remzo, I have no idea. You know why? Because I'm old, man. I'm old. I don't, you're probably the only student I know. I'm not even joking. You're probably literally the only student, other than maybe a few other people who listen to the show, who I actually know in real life. And uh, you're certainly not a supporter of social justice tendencies, although I happen to think you're probably not necessarily representative of, of many of your peers. When we're talking about within the liberty movement... I don't know. I, I have to think you asked that question for a reason. So maybe there's some stuff you're seeing. I'm going to ask you. Put this up in the forum. For people that are students out there, why are you posting the Lions of Liberty forum? Do you notice within liberty movement activists that you know who are other students, are there social justice tendencies that are starting to creep in? This is something that I don't really have an answer for, but I am very curious about the answer. I'm curious about some of the observations out there. So... By all means, come on over. Join the Lions of Liberty Forum. It's entirely free. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar on Facebook, and you too will be able to submit letters of liberty and comment on some of the stuff that I put out there. And that's going to be it this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Before I let you go, I want to also encourage you to check out a brand new podcast, the Classically Liberal Podcast with Matt Wells. I was the very first guest on that show. So if you want to hear even more of me talking about the ideas of liberty, you can find the Classically Liberal Podcast with Matt Wells. I think you're going to love it. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.